The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. All are welcome. We're glad you found us. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Eat better, get healthy, and help animals. Welcome to Main Street Vegan with your host, Victoria Moran. According to the World Health Organization, 422 million people worldwide have diabetes. That's nearly quadruple the number in 1980. Type 1 diabetes, formerly called childhood onset, means the body doesn't produce insulin, and why this happens is still unknown. Type 2 diabetes results from the body's ineffective use of the insulin it makes, and it can be prevented and even reversed. In our second segment today, we'll be talking with Cyrus Kambata, co-author of the New York Times bestseller, Mastering Diabetes. And my first guest in our first segment is Jackie Solomon, who recovered from type 2 diabetes and a host of other ills with a vegan diet, yoga, and meditation. Greetings, everybody. I'm Victoria Moran, your host for the Main Street Vegan Program. And you can find out more about everything we do at Main Street Vegan on our website, MainStreetVegan.net. You can subscribe to our blog and newsletter. You can sign up to get your questions answered for free from a Main Street Vegan certified coach. And you can check out Main Street Vegan Academy, where you yourself can be trained as a vegan lifestyle coach and educator. And without further ado, I present to you our wonderful first guest. And I have to tell you, there is so much to say about her that I can just give you cameos and we'll let her fill in the rest. Jackie Solomon reversed hypertension, depression, and a seizure disorder in addition to type 2 diabetes when she released over 160 pounds with a holistic lifestyle. She co-founded her nonprofit Seeds to Inspire as an early response to a great many social injustices, and she is a spiritual life coach with a background in humanistic neuro-linguistic programming, conscious parenting, and plant-based nutrition. From Phoenix, Arizona, welcome Jackie Solomon. Oh, thank you, thank you, thank you so much for having me. That was a beautiful introduction. And sometimes when you live this life, it's it's really, you forget 
the entire picture and the scope of, of your journey. So thank you for reminding me of it's been a journey. Yeah, being introduced is the coolest thing. And not everybody <laughs> is, is in a kind of life position where they get introduced very often. But I think we should do it for one another. I think we should do it for children. Like, let me introduce you and just say all the great stuff in a short amount of time. Because, you know, I think we can sit and ruminate and come up with like, well, yeah, that was good. But then those two other things weren't so hot. <laughs> so the introduction exactly. is a good thing. And I know you're a mom and you're, you're up on all that kind of stuff. So, Jackie, mm -hmm. jump right in with your amazing health transformation and, and the journey of, of transitioning your family from just eating like regular Americans to uh, doing uh, the vegan thing full force. Oh, wow. Oh, well, I'll begin. I'll preface it by saying that in 2009, my eldest son passed away. He was 11 years old, and he passed away from a severe allergic reaction to a pharmaceutical. I'm and so sorry. It was, it, thank you. I appreciate that. He is alive within me. He governs um, my journey. He governs my work. He guides me in everything I do, and it's how I got here. So what happened was, that was kind of like the background of my experience that even got me to Arizona in the first place. But it was in 2014, 2015, where my family really started showing signs of really, really significant um, disease. My 14-year-old at the time was diagnosed with organic brain syndrome. And basically, that just means that his brain was um, shutting down in a lot of areas. And when she, the neurologist sent him to get a CAT scan, the radiologist uh, phoned her immediately and, and wanted to make certain that she had sent the right patient because he could have sworn that he was looking at an, uh, a man in his early 40s with early onset Alzheimer's. And um, it was devastating news for us as a family. And that's where my search began for um, a way that I could preserve my family's health. How could I address this in a way that was going to be natural, was going to be holistic, because I was not interested in going back to any kind of further pharmaceuticals. We have been on already so many. And it was soon after that that they were, well, my twins uh, were diagnosed pre-diabetes and uh, high cholesterol. And it was suggested that the same son that was showing signs for organic brain syndrome go on statins. <laughs> And I just, that's when I just threw my hands up. I said, I refuse to do this any longer. I can't do this. I will not do this. And I started looking for, for natural ways. And I came across Forks Over Knives. That changed my life. And I started studying from there. And in September 29th, what the other twin, uh, September 29th of 2016, the other twin um, broke his leg. And it was going to be the first time that he was going to be able to play basketball on a high school team. And his father was going to be the coach. And when the, neuro, when the uh, orthopedic surgeon came in, she looked at me and said, I'm sorry, he's out for the season. All this crashed in on me as a mom in that moment, how sick my family was, how we feel like we have no options. We were victims to life. And there was just something, Victoria, inside of me that was, to me, it was really when I started seeing myself as that divine feminine, seeing myself as that nurturer and that caretaker, and I said, absolutely not. This is unacceptable, and I will not take this. There will be a way. So I started studying with the T. Colin Campbell Center for Nutrition Studies, and I earned my certificate in plant-based nutrition during the time my son was in this cast. 
I completely transitioned us to a whole food plant-based lifestyle, no oil. And he played at the end of that season. Not only did he wow. have surgery, he had an entire cast from toe to hip. And he came out of that cast bending his knee without pain. And with maybe two weeks of physical therapy, he was able to play the last two games of the season. That's the power of the plant-based lifestyle. And that's when I said, I can't keep this to myself. We have to share this with the world. We have to go back to our communities and help. There's so many of us that are suffering. There's so many of us that don't know that we have the ability to provide the, that, that culture in our body for ourselves to swim in and, and actualize their greatness, actualize their wisdom, actualize that regenerative quality that we have within us. And we don't know that. So that's how I started my journey of creating my nonprofit. And I co-founded it with my best friend to, ex- well, to exactly go back to the communities. So who were you before this, Jackie? I mean, did, did you have an interest in anything alternative, holistic? Had you looked into being vegetarian in the past? Or did you just really do a 360? I've always been into studying psychology. I've always worked um, personally in in writing and learning sacred sciences and sacred geometry. I've always had this passion for learning intrinsically who I am as a being, my connection to the divine, to universe, to all. But it never came across my awareness how I was consuming the violence on my plate, how I was on this journey to actualize my greatness, but every time I picked up my fork, I was sabotaging that journey. I never saw that. That never came into my awareness until I started going into my health journey. And I didn't truly discover that until I went to the uh, Center for Nutrition Studies and learned all about the injustices that were going on. Now that's where I made the connection to all of my activism work. I was already an education activist because my children all learned differently and they suffered very much in the public school system from discrimination. And I fought for years against the public education um, school system, all the way to the United States Department of Education Office of Civil Rights. And I had to file complaints and lawsuits in order to protect my children's rights. So I was fighting an advocacy for children and education reform. I was fighting for health reform. But it wasn't the connection with the health and the environment and the health and how we treat animals and what we consume. I didn't make that connection until I started researching, how can I improve my health? And to me, that was, I felt betrayed. I felt betrayed and I felt dishonored. And I felt when I looked at my children, that my whole life, all I ever wanted to do was be a mom. All I ever wanted to do was be able to support another being and becoming their greatest self. And every time I cooked and I was in that kitchen, I thought I was preparing loving meals. I was hurting my children. And I, that made me so angry. That made me so angry, and it fueled me to learn more. And the more I learned, the more I realized I didn't learn. I didn't know. And that fueled me more because it gave me that passion and that drive that it, if I felt trapped in a world and a life that was, I was unhappy, that it was a fact that I didn't know enough about me and how I function as a person, as a being. I just didn't know enough. I was in my own infancy. 
I was walking around as an adult avatar, but I truly, as a being, was in my infancy. So I just went on that journey eager to learn, like a child, rediscovering that curiosity, that exploration that we stifle in children in education was reawakened in me through the passion of becoming healthy, through the passion of advocating for those that, that don't know enough and don't have the resources enough to advocate for themselves. Wow. So I know that that's what you're doing now with Seeds to Inspire. So so tell us about that and about your, your work with social injustice and food. Oh, wow. So when I started learning about um, how, how I didn't know enough, it really started making me think about why I didn't know enough. Why was this happening? I grew up in the projects in New York City and Lower Manhattan, and I remember when the government would deliver those cheese blocks, and everyone would go and stand on the line to get the cheese, the government cheese, and it was a big joke. But, you know, people stood online because they were hungry. People stood online because they didn't have enough. And it made me wonder to stop looking at the what was going on and the why. Why didn't we have enough? Why didn't we have fresh vegetables and fruit in our local um, supermarkets? Why wasn't that accessible? Why did we have to bring it in? And we did. Within our own culture, we would have vans and we would have trucks that would deliver fresh produce on the corner. But why wasn't that in our local supermarkets? So I started thinking about that, and it really changed the frame of, of how I saw my childhood and how I saw my communities. It really made me look, I was able to gain that perspective, look back and say, why is it that here we're more sick? Why is it here that we're more violent? Why is it here that children don't get the resources in the school that this school does over here? And I started seeing that all these injustices were all one injustice. And it was kind of like this ability to tell people who they are, what their worth is, and what they deserve. And I decided that I needed to find that out for myself, and I was going to go and I was going to restore that resilience in the people here in Phoenix. I couldn't go back home to New York, but here in the Arizona, in the Phoenix area, I have my, my reflected community here. And I came in a time where um, Joseph Arpaio was uh, the sheriff here. So there was so many injustices going on. So I was going to the border. I was fighting at the border uh, for, for the immigration rights. I was fighting with the ACLU of Arizona for education reform. I was fighting in the local areas to bring farmer's markets. I was working in farmer's markets and volunteering. I was going to animal sanctuaries, and I said, okay, we need to prevent these things from happening. I was exhausting myself fighting all these fights in different fronts. So we decided to sit down and we said, we're going to create a school for children so that we can create children that are going to be prepared and learn about the social injustices and how they can rise to their best selves and be solution and be interrupters of the system. We need to teach them how we got to where we are so that they can, so they can contribute to the community instead of being victims to what already exists. And I hope that makes sense. Oh, it makes perfect sense. It's amazing that, that you just decided to do something. I mean, and I think we all make these decisions in our own way. For for me, my daughter had gone to a Montessori a preschool, and it was good for a, a while, and then it kind of seemed like some things weren't uh, <laughs> quite, quite mm-hmm. as good in the second or third year. And so I ended up homeschooling and thought, 
it's only kindergarten. I mean, even you can do kindergarten, but just like, you know, the alcoholics and a do it a day at a time. And we did school a year at a time. And I'd always say, okay, do, do you feel like maybe you might want to go to school? And she looked at me once and said, why do you want to get rid of me? It's like, I don't, I don't, oh. I just... You know, don't want you to say someday, you know, you, you wish you'd had the opportunity. And it turned out to be the most incredible adventure that enabled us to travel and, and learn from the world. And, and I think yeah. whenever parents get excited, you know, different people have different situations and and so different things are possible but to just know that that you know you had this idea and other people are thinking of these amazing things it just says so much about what's possible for the future so so talk to us a little bit Jackie on this connection between the plant-based movement and underserved communities I think this was something that some of us thought about a little bit in the past and a lot of us are thinking a lot about now. So where does all that stand and what can we do? I'm working right now on several projects for the underserved community. And I think the vegan perspective, the plant-based perspective, is one of compassion. It's radical compassion, radical inclusion, but it's also about truth. It's all about resilience and truth. And I think it's up to us to, to represent the movement as a movement of truth, of honor, of autonomy, of sovereignty. In order to do that, I think that we have a moral obligation to stand in the face of any injustice. And I think I'm working on right now not only the technology to help uh, connect us all, and that's what I do in my capacity with Virgins is, is helping to bring that cultural perspective of what's needed in our communities and help find ways to connect them with each other, peer-to-peer, -peer, right? Device to device. Well, we don't need Big Brother watching over us. Well, we don't need the Internet. How do we come back together as communities and, and build, again, not only that resilience but that autonomy? So that's one thing. But also... It's to bring the message that the, the food injustices feed the health injustices. And our black and brown communities are dying very quickly. They're the most vulnerable to the climate destabilization. The children are the first ones that are going to be vulnerable to become the first um, climate refugees. And that should be unacceptable to any vegan. That should be unacceptable to anyone that lives a lifestyle, a lifestyle of compassion that there are people that are going to be imminently suffering, that are already suffering because of the systems that are in place, already suffering with the socioeconomic climate that we're in, this political climate that we're in, but are suffering because of the choices that we're making with our, our food choices. What are we doing to one another? What are we doing to the planet? What are we doing to the animals? How is that propagating the violence in the communities? We have an obligation to rediscover, because we do know, all beings, we're all divine beings, and we all carry that inner wisdom from our ancestors. We all know. It's up to us to remember. And when we clear our bodies of that violence and those toxins, we do evolve. We do awaken. We do have more access to that compassion that we are. We are love. 
And it's up to us to not only be examples, but live that principle, live that philosophy, and go out into the world and make those changes with that reflection of love and compassion and truth that we are. That's so beautiful. And you mentioned earlier the divine feminine. And I wanted to follow you there a little bit. I'm taking yoga teacher training. My regular listeners know this because I talk about it every week. It's the most amazing experience. And we spent a lot of time this past weekend talking over and kind of hashing over the, the masculine history of so many traditions around the world and beautiful spiritual traditions with so much to offer, but where the feminine aspects kind of get pushed under the rug to a degree that they should not have been. So where do you come across on all that? Um, I really started awakening to the principle of the divine feminine and Gaia, and particularly Sophia, through uh, my studies and work with Dr. Will Tuttle. And I saw the divine feminine through that perspective. And I started understanding that as a divine feminine, I have been fighting to reemerge my whole life. I am naturally a nurturer and a caretaker. I am naturally an educator. I am naturally someone who cannot be in the face of injustice and do nothing, but I also cannot be in the face of suffering and do nothing. It is, it is who I am. And I became a pathological nurturer, a pathological caretaker where I didn't matter. What mattered was what I was doing, how I can help the other person. And I think that that's been something that's been entrained in us for generations upon generations. It's the way of almost utilizing our best qualities, but oppressing our ability to stand fiercely in honor of the ability to make change through love and compassion and education and nurturing. And I think that's what's what's awakening now. I think our mother is suffering. I think our mother is crying out. I think our mother is so saddened by what her children are doing to the rest of her children and her body. And I think she's crying out. And I think the divine feminine is now is alert, is awake, and is remembering what that song sounds like. And I think our hearts are resonating now with her call. And I think all of us, man and female, male and female, we're all responding to that call. And I think the divine feminine is rising. And I think it is taking place, especially through the children, that, that their ability, this, these new generations that are coming in, this new light that's coming into the planet, that they are resistant to, to the entrainment. They are resistant to the social order, the conditioning. They understand who they are. They understand that they have the right to be who they were born to be. And to me, that is the essence of the divine feminine. And we that came before them, it's our obligation to clear the way and the path for them and create an environment so we can walk together into this new world that we're co-creating. They deserve it and we deserve it. Amen. So I know that you also do some work with Dr. Silas Rao and climate healers. And as a, a mother with some kids still at home, it's, it's got to be difficult to read and hear and know about the predictions for the future of this planet. And yet you and, and Dr. Rao and amazing people are just there saying, no, no, we're, we're, we're going to fix this. We're going to do this. So how do you do that? How do you keep yourself 
psyched? And what are you doing in the climate change arena? Well, I I must admit that my spirituality is is the number one thing in my life that reminds me that there is a greater order, that reminds me that I am much greater than I could possibly fathom, and that makes me look at every other being on this planet, every tree, every breeze, every bee, every child, everyone as divine. And if I can see myself and everyone as divine, then I don't have a right to lay down and take this. <laughs> I, my, my obligation is to stand up and say, why are, we, why are we accepting this? Why are we allowing this to happen? Not on my watch. And to me, Victoria, that is the fierceness of the divine feminine. This is not on my watch. My children are suffering. People are dying. Animals are suffering. Our mother is suffering. No, we don't get to just sit around and go be fearful. We don't get to sit around and be depressed. We have the power. We have the agency. We have the ability to stand up and do something. And why are we not? I've never been a person to sit down and just accept, you know, I'm not a victim to life. Life is not against me. I am life. And if I am life, I am part of the cause. That means I can be part of the solution. And we're all part of the cause. We can all be part of the solution. So I'm steeped in my spirituality. My meditation and my yoga practice is very dear to me. I can tell very easily if I skip a day because I don't feel like myself like that spiritual human being that I truly am. And I think all of us in this movement that feel this, this almost jubilous kind of feeling, it's because there's nothing more powerful than not feeling like a victim, the feeling like you have the power to do something and change. And I changed my life 180 degrees. That means if I can do it, anyone can do it. And if I can do it for myself, and we're beings of vibration, we're beings of energy, we're frequency, when we work on ourselves, we automatically, automatically, we benefit all those around us. So if we can all inspire one another to be our best selves, we will create an environment for everyone else to rise also. It's the principle of resonance. So that helps me to stay really steep in this joy that I have. I get it. I get it. And I recognize that I am one of the probably 14 luckiest people on earth (laughs) that I get to talk to people, wonderful people like you every week on this program. Jackie, you have so inspired me and I'm sure that you have inspired everyone. Check out this amazing woman at seedstoinspireaz.org and we'll put all kinds of contact information and URLs for Jackie on the show notes at MainStreetVegan.net. Everybody stay with us. We are going to learn to master diabetes right after these messages. Stay with us. You're listening to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world.
Welcome back to Main Street Vegan with your host, Victoria Moran. Well, hello again. And I do want to remind everybody that I am super excited about the very cool weekend retreat that I will be leading September 26th and 27th via Zoom. Of course, it's via Zoom. Life is via Zoom these days. It is called Acing Age with Ayurveda. If you're over 45, the ancient Indian health and healing system of Ayurveda has so much wisdom to impart that really isn't available anywhere else. And this retreat will be two days of literally bliss and learning in your own home. It will be divine, and that's a promise. You can sign up at tinyurl.com slash acingageretreat, or just go to mainstreetvegan.net, and there's a nice big slider right on the homepage. Use the discount code POD, that's POD in capital, because you're a podcast listener, and you'll get 20% off this totally splendid weekend retreat, and I do hope you can make it. And I'm so happy that you have made it today to this program and my extraordinary uh, next guest that I'm just tickled pink to be introducing. He is, and you know, I forgot to ask you, Cyrus, during the break, I'm going to say your name the way I think it's said. And if I say it wrong, you can fix it. I'm going to say Cyrus Chambada, PhD. Almost. Yeah, it's, okay. It's Kambada, but nice Kambada. Work. You know, mm-hmm. that is exactly what I would have said had I not focused on the age. Cyrus <laughs> Kambada, PhD. And he is a New York Times best selling author. That is a thing to be of mastering diabetes. And he's been living with type 1 diabetes for 18 years, and he's helped over 50 thousand people reverse insulin resistance using food as medicine. Welcome, Cyrus. Thank you so much, Veronica. It's awesome to be here today. Well, and, and I'm Victoria, so now we're even. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Veronica Victoria. No My worries. Boss. And we're, and we're t- I'm talking to you in Costa Rica. What a heavenly place. Are you in the, the beachy part or the mountainy part? Yeah, I live on the west coast near Tamarindo, just a couple hours north. So it's uh, it's beachy, it's hot, and it is tropical. And that's exactly why my wife and I wanted to move here in the first place. Oh, it sounds magnificent. Do you have monkeys nearby? We have monkeys all over the place. You might even oh. hear them uh, during the podcast at some point. <laughs> Don't be surprised. I hope we do. I hope we do. <laughs> so, so Cyrus, tell us about your your personal experiences. You're living with type 1 diabetes and right. you're eating a plant-based diet that this has changed your life. So do tell. Yeah. So I was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes back in the year 2002 when I was 22 years old. So, uh, you know, I was kind of a happy-go-lucky kid at the time. I was going to Stanford University and I was just trying to graduate and move on with my life. And I actually got diagnosed with three autoimmune conditions at the same time. Uh, the first one was uh, Hashimoto's hypothyroidism, which is low thyroid hormone output. Uh, the second one is called alopecia universalis, which is just a really fancy super nerd way of describing uh, what happens when you get total hair loss. And then the third one was type 1 diabetes. So all three of these set in within a six-month period. And I was I was very scared and I didn't understand what was happening. Um, so I go to the hospital because I was feeling very low energy and uh, very thirsty and I didn't really understand what was happening. And the doctors right there on the spot diagnosed me with type 1 diabetes monitored me for 24 hours, started injecting insulin, and then 24 hours later when I was di- when I was discharged from the hospital, uh, I was given a prescription for two different types of insulin, a blood glucose meter, 
uh, test strips, a carbohydrate counting guide, and a life alert bracelet that basically said, hey, I'm a chronic disease patient, and if you see me pass out on the side of the road, then please call 911. So all of this happened in a very short period of time, and I, I didn't know what to do. Uh, the doctors at the time told me to eat a low-carbohydrate diet because that's what doctors do. You know, no, no, uh, It's no fault of their own, but they just weren't really trained uh, in medical school about nutrition. And so I started eating a low-carbohydrate diet, which is what a lot of people around the world are still doing today. Uh, and at that time, I was eating things like turkey burgers and fish and chicken and dairy products and peanut butter. And I was told to specifically keep my carbohydrate intake very low, which means eat a small amount of fruits and potatoes and rice and corn and beans and eat a lot more of those other foods that I mentioned. So I did that for the first year, hoping and thinking that it was going to control my blood glucose better, but it did the opposite. My glucose became very uncontrollable and my insulin use started creeping up over time. It started out at like 25 units a day, then went up to 30, 32, 36, 38, 40, 42, 45, 46 units a day. And before I knew it, uh, I had a feeling that I was uh, heading in the wrong direction. Uh, in addition to that, my joints started hurting, my muscles started hurting, I got very depressed, and I just knew that there had to be a, a better way. So long story short, I ended up coming across uh, a mutual friend of ours, Dr. Doug Graham. And Dr. Doug Graham was the first person that I had spoken with in my life living with diabetes that uh, had the confidence to be able to actually teach me what to do and what to eat. So under his supervision, he taught me how to switch over from a low-carbohydrate diet to actually a low-fat diet and do it in a way where I'm maximizing my plant intake by eating as many raw fruits and vegetables as possible. So I did that. And uh, I got to tell you, within the first week of eating a low-fat, plant-based, whole-food diet, my blood glucose fell like a rock. I was expecting it to go up because that's what the rhetoric in the diabetes world told me. My glucose fell. My insulin use fell by 40% in the first week. I started to feel more energy. I was better hydrated. I was going to the bathroom more frequently, and I just felt fantastic. So long story short, I put myself back to graduate school. I went and got a PhD in nutritional biochemistry because I wanted the science. I really wanted to understand what was happening inside of me. And then while I was studying um, nutritional biochemistry at UC Berkeley for five years, I learned that the exact experiment that I had put myself under had already been tested in the scientific research for almost 100 years, if you can believe it. And over that course of 100 years, the scientific community has clearly described everything that I was experiencing and actually has demonstrated that this is a very powerful way to not only control type 1 diabetes, but to actually reverse type 2 diabetes. So at that point, I ended up joining forces with my co-founder. His name is Robbie Barbero. And the two of us decided to create a business called Mastering Diabetes, where we teach people living with all forms of diabetes how to transition to a plant-based diet so that they can experience not only what we experienced, but also get incredible results that are both in the short term and in the long term. Oh, that's that's stunning. <laughs> so what is the problem? Because as you said, there are people all over the world eating a low-carb diet for diabetes, for prediabetes. So what's wrong with that? Yeah, it's a great question. So um, when you eat a low-carbohydrate diet, you actually uh, can easily develop a condition known as insulin resistance and or glucose intolerance. There's sort of two different ways of talking about the same condition. Um, Low-carbohydrate diets are very popular. 
right? The, you have the paleo diet is a relatively low carbohydrate diet. The Atkins diet was a low carbohydrate diet and still continues to be. Um, the ketogenic diet is the ultimate low carbohydrate diet. It's a very low carbohydrate diet. And all of these low carbohydrate diets are, they vilify carbohydrates. They point a finger at anything carbohydrate rich, whether it's uh, refined carbohydrates like cookies and crackers and chips and pastas and sodas, or whether it's whole versions of carbohydrate like fruits and starchy vegetables and legumes and whole grains. And they point a finger at them and they lump them into one giant category called carbs. And they say, carbs <laughs> are bad for you. If you eat carbs, you will gain weight. If you eat carbs, your blood sugar will go up. If you eat carbs, your insulin uh, output will increase. If you eat carbs, you will increase your risk for heart disease. And so that is the premise of all these low-carbohydrate diets. And so there's millions of people around the world that are eating low-carbohydrate diets thinking that they're improving their long-term health. But what they actually end up doing is they get tremendous short-term benefits. And the short-term benefits include, number one, rapid weight loss. Number two, reduced A1C values, which is just a marker of your average blood glucose. They reduce, reduce their fasting glucose. They reduce their fasting insulin levels. Oftentimes, they reduce their blood pressure, and they can reduce their total cholesterol levels. So on a piece of paper, if you eat a low-carbohydrate diet within the first six months, maybe a year, things move in the right direction, and you get really excited about it. Your doctor gives you a high five, and everyone's happy. But what the research is actually showing is that people who eat low-carbohydrate diets end up developing problems over the course of time. And these problems start with uh, things like an increased risk for diabetes. And like I said earlier, it doesn't make any sense, right? Because you're saying, well, Cyrus, everything else moved in the right direction in the first six months, so how could it all of a sudden reverse and flip-flop on itself? And the answer is that all of these short-term results actually end up um, becoming true mainly because you lose weight and you lose weight quickly. In other words, when you do anything that, that creates weight loss, then all the other biomarkers um, that are indicators of your metabolic health also tend to improve relatively quickly. So because you're losing weight, that's why your cholesterol level drops. That's why your blood pressure drops. That's why your insulin level drops. That's why your fasting glucose drops. But as soon as that weight loss slows down, as soon as that weight loss stops, because it will at some point, then your vasculature, your blood vessels, your pancreas, your liver, your brain, they start to experience uh, an, an increased risk for damage over the course of time. And this thing that is called insulin resistance is basically in a nutshell, it happens when you consume a diet that's high in fat and you eat triglyceride in the form of food. The triglycerides travel down your esophagus. They get inside of your uh, digestive system. And then the fatty acids from these triglyceride molecules end up in your blood. Now, under normal circumstances, if these fatty acids just went only into your fat tissue or your adipose tissue, then everything would be fine. There'd be no problem. But what happens is that these fatty acids go inside of your adipose tissue or your fat tissue where they're supposed to be. And then in addition to that, they also end up spilling over into your muscle and into your liver. And your muscle and liver have an ability to store small amounts of fat because that's how they're designed physiologically. But they do not have a very good ability to store large quantities of fatty acids. So when you're eating a low-carbohydrate diet and you're eating high-fat foods for breakfast and lunch and dinner today and then tomorrow and the next day and the next day, 
it's very easy to overwhelm your liver and muscle with too much fatty acids. And as soon as they start to overaccumulate fatty acids, they then block insulin from functioning because when they can do that, they can sort of limit the amount of energy that's coming in. It's just sort of a mechanism to try and slow down the amount of energy that's coming into these cells. So the next time you go eat something that's carbohydrate rich, like a banana or a plate of beans or maybe some quinoa, many people say, that, oh, look, I had you know, one banana and I checked my blood glucose and all of a sudden it's at a 200. Cyrus, I just ate one bowl of quinoa and my glucose is at a 220. What is happening? And the answer is, it's not the carbohydrate-rich food's fault, okay? The quinoa is not the problem. The banana is not the problem. The mango is not the problem. It's everything that you ate before that carbohydrate-rich food that set the stage for a metabolic traffic jam known as insulin resistance. And when that metabolic traffic jam exists, then eating carbohydrate-rich food just is much, much more challenging. So what you got to do is reverse the insulin resistance by getting rid of that excess fat in your diet. And over the course of time, you can end up getting rid of that metabolic traffic jam and getting to a point where you can eat lots of carbohydrate-rich foods and your blood glucose stays very stable and your risk for other diseases like chronic kidney disease and fatty liver disease and heart disease also goes down. That is so clear. Bless you. I've, I've never heard it explained in quite so succinctly. Now, there are a couple of terms that you use that I would love it if you would clear those up for people. So one is triglycerides. What are they and how do we avoid having too many of them? Okay, great. So triglycerides are the storage form of fatty acids. So in nature and in your body, fatty acids rarely exist by themselves. They do in very small quantities, but most frequently when you encounter fat inside of a food, inside of your, uh, you know, another animal inside of your body, they are stored as a molecule called a triglyceride. And you can just think of a, a triglyceride as like, uh, imagine you had a backbone, okay? So you had like one molecule known as glycerol and attached to that glycerol is three fatty acids. And that's what the name is, tri for three and glyceride because it's attached to glycerol. So a triglyceride is basically three fatty acids attached to one glycerol backbone, and that's just a simple way that they exist in nature. When you eat the triglyceride molecule, you have the enzymatic machinery to tear apart the triglyceride, and you, you separate the fatty acids from the glycerol, and then you can use the fatty acids and use the glycerol for various metabolic pathways. Does that make sense? It does indeed. And then insulin resistance, and you also call that glucose intolerance. Correct. So is that what we think of as pre-diabetes? And if not, what is it? <laughs> and okay. then what, what should people be looking for? How would somebody know that they had that? Okay, very good question. So um, the term insulin resistance and glucose intolerance are, are somewhat synonymous with each other. Um, glucose intolerance is, is any state in which you consume glucose in food. And the glucose is a building block of a carbohydrate, right? So I told you earlier, I would go and eat some bananas, right? The banana contains carbohydrate, a, a significant amount. And if you were to put the carbohydrate under a microscope and look at it, it would look like a long necklace of thousands of beads long. And each one of the beads would be glucose, okay? Um, so the glucose is a building block. 
And when you eat foods that are carbohydrate rich, you end up breaking your digestive system, breaks those carbohydrate chains into the glucose molecules. And those glucose molecules then try to get into your liver, into your muscle, and into your brain to be used for energy. So when you become glucose intolerant, that means something else has blocked the ability of glucose to get inside of your liver and your muscle and your brain. Okay, so something is causing the metabolic traffic jam, causing an intolerance to glucose. And another way of phrasing that is insulin resistance because they're pretty much one and the same. So to answer your second question, well, what can someone do? How do they know if they're glucose intolerant, right? Um, a simple thing that you can do is you can go, there's a couple of measures. There's simple things and there's more complicated things. Number one, your fasting glucose is a good indicator of your glucose tolerance or your, uh, your insulin resistance level, okay? So if your fasting glucose is underneath 100, that is a somewhat strong indicator that you are glucose uh, tolerant, that you're insulin sensitive, but not necessarily foolproof by any stretch of the imagination. Um, your A1C value is another kind of weak marker of your glucose intolerance and or your insulin sensitivity. The best thing that you can do is you can you can do an at-home oral glucose tolerance test, or you can go to a doctor and get an oral glucose tolerance test. At home, all you would do is eat 75 grams worth of carbohydrate, whether that comes from bananas or mangoes or watermelon or some kind of uh, you know, carbohydrate-rich source. You eat that, and then you monitor your blood glucose over the course of the next two hours. If your blood glucose goes higher than 140, then that's an indicator that you are glucose intolerant, okay? Um, if you go to the doctor's office, what they'll do is they'll give you a solution that contains water with a little bit of glucose dissolved in it with 75 grams of glucose in it, and then they will do the same thing. You drink that, and then they monitor your blood glucose over the course of the next two hours, and if your glucose goes high as a result of drinking that solution, then that's an indicator that you are glucose intolerant. Perfectly stated. I think everybody is going to leave this show feeling like some kind of diabetes expert. So <laughs> I, I, I know that it, it's the kind of of general knowledge. People are like, oh, if you're diabetic, you shouldn't eat fruit. Fruit is full of sugar. Oh, I don't eat fruit because it's, it's so full of sugar. What do you say to them? Yeah. Okay. This is one of my, one of the things that we hear over and over and over again. Okay. First off, here's the problem. People use the word sugar improperly. In the same way that we talked about lumping all carbohydrate-rich foods into one category called carbs, that's an oversimplification and it does not adequately describe the biological effect of eating, you know, of, of the difference between a soda and a mango. The two of them are fundamentally different species and cannot be talked about in the same category. So the term carb is way too simple and it confuses people. In the same way, the term sugar, I think should not be used unless there's another word in front of it, okay? When okay. you refer to sugar, you refer to things like white table sugar, okay? White table sugar is a crystal. It's been bleached. It's been uh, refined from its original product, which was a beet or which was sugar cane, okay? And it's been gone through a very heavy refining process to end up as a, as a pure white substance. When you consume that white table sugar, it dramatically uh, increases your risk for many chronic diseases 
and it puts your liver into a state of metabolic nightmare. Okay, so refined sugar is canonically the term that we the, the thing that we should be thinking about when we use the word sugar. Um, but when you're talking about a whole carbohydrate, whether it's from beans or potatoes or or bananas or any other type of fruit, okay, I don't want to use the word sugar because it is a wrong word. What you want to use in that particular situation is carbohydrate because carbohydrate is exactly what you are eating and the carbohydrate molecule breaks down into monosaccharides called glucose and fructose and galactose and a whole other collection of words that end in os okay so point being when people say oh i shouldn't eat fruit because fruit contains sugar uh uh what they should be saying is i should be eating a lot of fruit because fruit contains whole carbohydrate and whole carbohydrate breaks down into glucose and glucose is a fuel for my liver for my muscles and for my brain does that make sense oh it makes so much sense this is this is incredibly cool so what about i I know you've talked about the low-carb diets and keto being low-carb on steroids but so many people want to do it, and so many people, even vegans, want to do it. So number one, is there such a thing? Can you truly put yourself into ketosis and stay there eating products of the plant kingdom? And if you can, why would you want to? Okay, so this is a great question because not all ketogenic diets are created equal. So there are ketogenic diets that are primarily animal-based. And these are, again, very low-carbohydrate diets in which you're, you're eating the bulk of your calories from red meat, white meat, chicken, fish, dairy products, um, and, and olive oil, or I should say vegetable oils. Okay, so that's, that's what we consider an animal-based ketogenic diet. There's also plant-based ketogenic diets that, in which people get the bulk of their calories from nuts and seeds and avocados and vegetable oils and coconuts, okay? So the question is, are the two of those the same? Do they have the same effect on your body or do they not have the same effect on your body and why? And what the research shows is actually fascinating. When you eat a animal-based ketogenic diet, you can increase your risk for many chronic diseases, again, as we talked about over the course of time. Cardiovascular disease, fatty liver disease, chronic kidney disease are the three most uh, prominent diseases that, um, that, that the research has talked about. Um, in addition to that, Alzheimer's disease is actually becoming a much bigger topic in the world today because Alzheimer's disease has been thought about canonically as just being a thing that you're going to get and there's nothing you can do about it. But in reality, there's a very strong connection to the foods that are in your diet. When you eat an animal-based ketogenic diet, you increase your risk for many of these chronic conditions. When you eat a plant-based ketogenic diet, you do not increase your risk for those same conditions, even though you're getting most of your calories from fat sources. The fact that the, the, the type of fat that you're consuming comes from plant-based sources, it tends to be more unsaturated as opposed to saturated. As a result of that, you end up actually getting improved health. So people who eat Plant-based ketogenic diets are not at an increased risk for heart disease. They're not at an increased risk for Alzheimer's disease. They're not at an increased risk for chronic kidney disease, okay? But the question is, well, why would you want to do it in the first place? And my answer to you is this. If you eat a plant-based ketogenic diet, again, very low-carbohydrate diet based mainly in plant-based fats, 
you could do that and you could get away with it for some period of time. But first things first, it's very limiting. It's very hard to create a sustainable lifestyle doing so. Uh, number two, people who uh, I have talked to anecdotally, people who have gone through our coaching program, people who have really committed themselves to plant-based ketogenic diets, say that their biomarkers are in good shape, but that they're very low energy and they just are, they have a difficult time sort of like thinking clearly and functioning as a normal human being. In addition to that, we also talk to a lot of people who eat these high-fat plant-based diets and they end up with a lot of digestive problems either with gas or bloating or constipation or diarrhea frequently. And they constantly talk about the fact that they're, they know that there's a problem in their digestive system, but they don't really understand what it is. So instead of doing that, what I recommend people do is I say, look, clearly the research indicates that eating more plants is beneficial. Okay. I, I wish we could stop talking about that as like a, a, you know, as a novel concept because it has just been shown over and over and over and over again. But the fact of the matter is eating more plant-based food is very beneficial for your overall health. But what I would argue is try not to eat fat-based carbohydrate, I'm sorry, fat-based uh, plant-based foods. Instead, eat carbohydrate-rich plant-based foods because when you do that, you actually can dramatically increase your energy levels. You can improve the function of your microbiome. You can improve the function of your brain. You can become more insulin-sensitive. You can become more glucose tolerant and you can dramatically increase your ability to move your body and exercise the way that you might want to do. Well, so, go carbs. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> Thank they're, you. They're oh, just my goodness. Fuels. Bless you. Cyrus Kambata, Mastering Diabetes. The book is fabulous. Masteringdiabetes.org. These people can help you out. They know their stuff. Thank you so much for taking the time with us today. Thanks Thank to you, both of our guests, in fact. Yes, and Unity Online Radio. And thanks to you for listening. God bless you. Eat your veggies. Thank you for listening to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Hey, it's Radley Valentine. Join me for a brand new way of connecting with your angels on my new podcast, The Angel Tarot Show. Each week, you'll meet your angelic guides and guardians and find new ways to unlock unconditional love, tune into your intuitive abilities, and create the joy-filled life that, well, you've always wanted. Plus, you'll get a useful and timely energetic weather report, bringing you guidance for the coming week. Tap into the healing, hope, and guidance that's all around you on The Angel Tarot Show, exclusively on mindbodyspirit.fm.